To hey hey agave. Today we are joined by Ryan Toll, the co-organizer of Maestros del Mezcal and the founder of the importing company of Spine and Vine. Hey Ryan. Hi guys. Thanks for having me today. Thanks for joining us. And Gabrielle, you are with us as well. I am next to you in the next room. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Um, and Ryan, you are in Oaxaca, right? Yeah, I am in my old office that I uh, used to share with Neta, with Max and Nikki here in the centro of Oaxaca. Um, it's on kind of a busy road, so hopefully there's not too much traffic noise in the background, but I'm, I'm locked in the kitchen here, so I'm trying to keep that to a minimum. Are you in the old Piedra Lumbre? Yeah, exactly. Awesome. <laughs> that place That's is cool insane. Space. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Um, so I kind of wanted to start this conversation off a little bit differently than how we typically go into it. And it's basically, I think it's because I feel, and I think we all feel that, that Ryan, we, we have a lot to talk about and there's a lot of possibility in the conversation and what direction it can take. But, you know, Gabs and I were talking earlier and we kind of were like, oh man, we should just ask what's like, what's really important to us and kind of like in our hearts uh, to start out with. And and that is that like, you know, most of us that come into Mezcal and then decide that we really like it and we find it to be really special, start doing research about it, you know, and that can lead into many different areas of study and, you know, going down a rabbit hole. And, and I think ultimately, at least for Gabrielle and myself, it really led us to the plants themselves, to the agaves. Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of interested in just knowing what your relationship to these plants are. And if you want to expound on that, however you want, I think I'd just like to open up that conversation right away. Okay. Um, so, and kind of one of the the reasons I really started to get into Mezcal or explore it more is because of the um, diversity of the of the plants that are used to make it, and also the the production styles. And um, being here in Oaxaca, obviously, is kind of the center for genetic diversity for the agave and uh, just trying to make sense of it in some way. Um, I've, I've been fortunate enough to travel around a good amount of Oaxaca to the different regions where mezcal is made. And uh, you just come across so much genetic variety, genetic variation and, uh, and linguistic variation Uh so yeah, I guess part of it for me has been recognizing just this crazy diversity and and trying to make some sense of it in the way that that I do. Um, that's, I don't know if you've ever seen that map that I made, but that's kind of like my beginning of trying to make uh, sense of of the great amount of diversity here in Oaxaca. I was just going to ask, like when you were when you talk 
about the linguistics of, of the plants themselves, are you referring to like the common names that are used yeah. for, yeah. As, oppo- as opposed to the scientific names? Yeah, exactly. There's just, uh, as you know, there's, there's quite a few different languages spoken in Oaxaca and then even within, you know, Spanish or, or towns that are speaking are both speaking Spanish. There's still a lot of variation in the common names that might be referring to the same species or, or different species. Um, So, yeah. That can get really confusing. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, I think counted there's around 11 or 12 species of agave used to make mezcal in Oaxaca. I think, I don't have my map here in front of me, but then you break it down into common names and there's, I mean, there's like 50, how, 60 different. How, I, I think Sabrina was telling me early on before we start talking to you, uh, you have a background in linguistic from school. Uh, from university, right? Yeah, I studied uh, language studies. So there was a combination of linguistics courses and then um, language, just taking uh, language courses. But yeah, I just did an undergraduate degree in that. Uh, but yeah, I've definitely always been interested in in linguistics. And so, so when you when you land in in a country like Mexico, that is. Uh, on the dozens of, of, of native languages and, and complexity of tongues and cultures and everything. Like you were, you were basically in like the source, like Oaxaca, Puebla, Guerrero, Veracruz, like that South part of Mexico. There's, there's so much and it changes so drastically from like one town to another. Uh, did, did you start like getting a little bit in, in love with the, the possibility with mezcal and language and just native culture? I think um, there's, I mean, kind of when I started going around uh, to the different regions with, with Abel Alcantara, the president of Maestros del Mezcal, and um, meeting these different people. In some communities, you know, they're speaking Mixteco or Zapoteco to see the different, uh, the different, Varieties of Zapoteco within Oaxaca, uh, also Mije and Chontal. Um, so that, yeah, the linguistic parts one part of it. The what I mean, how I started to make divisions on that map uh, kind of has more to do with with geographical uh, boundaries and with kind of boundaries and production styles and. Um, maybe boundaries in uh, kind of terroir, one might say. But yeah, there's so many different um, kind of parameters, ways that you could divide it up. It's it's definitely a work in progress. How how did you met uh, Abel? Um, I just met Abel, I think, in El Cortijo, the the little mezcaleria. I don't know if you been to Cortijo. It's on Cinco de Mayo. I was just in there one night having a mezcal and uh, he was in there as well. And that's kind of how I met him. And he invited me to go with him the next day to Santa Catarina Minas, where they were having 
one of the uh, meetings with all the producers there. At that time, uh, Lalo Angeles was in, involved in the group as well. And yeah, that's kind of how it started. And what about what time is this? Uh, I think that was know, 2000 your timeline. <laughs> 11 or 2012, I think. And you were just, um, you were in Oaxaca kind of living, working. Had you started any project uh, to date or were you kind of just figuring out, you know, uh, what you wanted to do point, and how you wanted to, to? Yeah, at that point I was working in La Mezcalerita, which at that time was just a little, uh, it was like a little, like three meter long mezcal bar. It was a tiny little room. And they'd have like one employee working at a time. Uh, and I, yeah, I kind of started working there just because I, I wanted to have more contact with Mezcal and learn more about it. And uh, I guess it was kind of at the same time when I met Abel. And he was the one that introduced you to the project of Maestros? Yeah, he he's the founder of the civil association Maestros del Mezcal. Um, He's always been involved in kind of social organization. He he worked for, uh, I don't remember what branch of the government, but something having to do with like forestry management kind of in Guerrero, like about, I think, 20 some years ago. And that's when he started the first uh, kind of group of mezcal producers in the Sierra of Guerrero. And then started organizing uh, kind of small cooperatives or collectives here in Oaxaca uh, around uh, about 10, 10 years ago. And now the organization has like a lot of members, right? Uh, hundreds, I would yeah, say. Yeah, it's, it's like a very loosely organized group, um, but there are members really all over the country uh, but obviously the most are in Oaxaca just because there are so many more mezcal producers here than, than there are in any other state really. So we have we have been talking a little bit right now about the maestros and mezcal but I, I don't think we have uh, described what what this organization does. Will, will you mind just doing like a little tiny synopsis just so if we can keep on talking, people can understand what is like the main goal, if there's one that is singular, or if it is a, a few different goals, maybe maybe just brush on the on the more broad strokes of uh, of what, what the organization is trying to accomplish. Yeah, so it's really, uh, so it's a civil association, it's kind of like a nonprofit group in Mexico and dedicated to promoting and protecting traditional mezcal, uh, really organizing uh, producers, which is something that no one does. There's a lot of brands that um, focus on the commercial side of the mezcal, and sometimes they'll have you know some projects that will have some social impact in the communities where they work. Uh, you have the CRM, which is really focused on protecting the word mezcal and promoting it uh, commercially throughout the world. Uh, but the Maestros del Mezcal Civil Association is 
meant to organize small traditional mezcal producers and yeah, basically promote what they do and also kind of protect their traditions. And the way we do that is through uh, one, getting resources for them to better their palenques and their fabricas, their tabernas, um, which may be in the form of like concrete or or roofing roofing material, uh, and also things like uh, greenhouses or shade houses for seed uh, reforestation projects, uh, a number of things like that, like actual financial resources for them. And the other big thing that we do is organize these events where they get to sell mezcal directly to the public. Um, and we, we've been doing them in Oaxaca for, I think, six years now. Um, we do one every year. And people come from all over Oaxaca. And they're able to sell their mezcal directly to the public. We don't charge any money for them. We usually do it in public spaces. Um, but... We've been having a little bit of trouble with that with the local government here. So we've done it in a couple of times in private spaces, but it's always been open to the public. Last time we did one, it was in Archivo Maguey here in Oaxaca. And the producers just have to give two bottles each to the the venue. Uh, but from then on, we don't charge anything. And we, we are on our third, we've done three national events in Mexico City uh, where around a hundred producers come from all over the country and we provide them with the hotel for two nights and their meals. And they also get to sell directly to the public. Um, this year we had 4,000 visitors approximately in, in the two days. Was, oh man, uh, that's Saturday awesome. Sunday. So it was, it yeah, was, we saw some really cool um, reporting on that, I guess, like people posting photos and just people that were there and, and just explaining how incredible it was. Yeah, it's been a great way for them um, to, to get to know other parts of Mexico. Sometimes they don't leave their towns too much, um, especially sometimes the women have had less opportunity to, to travel and also, they've they've made a lot of good contacts this way. A lot of them um, now work with brands directly as a result of of these events that we've done. Does that get tricky? And <laughs> I, I, I know I'm playing devil's advocate with that question, but you know, by by having uh, so you guys are organizing, they're able to be in the same space. You have uh, a multiple of brands that they're able to basically come and, and connect directly with the mezcaleros uh but after that you you have no follow-up there's no way to to be part of the the next part of the conversation or are you guys being able also to to help them on the next step because you know one of the things that is kind of interesting is like you have you have this amazing mezcal is being produced but uh, and and probably with a lot of of the help that you guys are doing by helping organize the producers but once this is done the 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 other difficult part is for a producer to be able to be a businessman and and deal with the brands that they're being connected directly with um have have you seen any any of those things happening and, yeah. and having to be maybe maybe a little bit of an an advisor in some way or form well so 
this project has always been a, a social project, and it's, I think it's been a very conscious decision by Abel uh, to never to not make a brand. Uh, that being said, we are working on making a collective brand now that the the civil association will be the owner of the brand. So um, it won't be Abel's brand or my brand or anyone else's brand. The civil association is going to be the owner. But I mean, he's resisted this for so long because he knows once money gets involved, yeah. there's always problems, there's jealousies. It's just, it creates a whole nother world of, of problems. Uh, so we've, we, the only really advice we've given people uh, in dealing with uh, people who want to work with them on other brands is to, to not sign any contracts and um, to be conscious of, of the prices that are being paid. Uh, Do you have like a list of, of, of prices that will help to give the, the producers an idea of what, you know, what people are being paid all around is is that something that you guys are able to to help the the mescaleros with i think i mean people talk between themselves which is another good thing about this like uh, these communities that often would probably never never talk to each other like the mixtecos and the mixteca alta oaxaca with the with the zapoteco or the or the people in miahuatlan and the sierra sur uh, the fact that they all come together and have this chance and now they've built these relationships where sometimes they're they're helping each other out and now they're helping with with uh, maguey or you know different different things needed in the campo uh, yeah so they there's this network that they've built because of this where the, they have access to information uh, and also one thing we've done in a number of times is is going through with them, and I remember the first time I went to the Mixteca Alta, so like this is the Teotzacualco area of Oaxaca. Uh, the mezcal they were selling for about 70 pesos a liter, and we did uh, a costeo with them just to go through and see how much it cost them to make a liter of mezcal because they're not calculating in like a lot of times the agave, the wood. Yeah. Uh, their family's time, the labor, the water. So once we we sat around with about 20 people and and went one by one through these different things and tried to put a price to them, and we we figured that they were selling their mezcal for about like a 15 peso loss, and oh, and they were wow. all pretty shocked about that. Uh, and since it has gone you up, know? I think now in the same area, it's probably at least double um, minimum. I'm I'm sure that for you guys to just show face and have this conversation, you you open universes that they will never been able to even imagine. And and knowing that, you know, you come a couple of years later and you find that the price at least is even or maybe they're making a little better profit. I think that is that on its own is is amazing, man. Congratulations. That is a that is 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 such a it's such a happiness to hear that there's people like you doing this kind of work. Yeah, yeah, I think it's an important part of uh, definitely just having people recognize a little bit the the cost of their of their time and their families' labor and and other natural resources that they might not necessarily think have any um, any valor. 
Yeah, the, the value the value is completely undervalued <laughs> if you want to say it like that. You know, it's like there's yeah, you see you see the the you know, it's, you see people and if if anybody has the 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 luck to be in in rural Mexico while the process of mezcal is as being made and man is is all you know yesterday i was i was doing a a, a talk on zoom about a, a mezcal and the one thing that it keep on popping in my brain to be very strong about the thought is like look at look at what they have to work with like the the, the hand tools are you know, metal and wood, and they have this patina that you can tell that they have been used and used and used. Uh, everything else around is 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 stationary. So the tinas, the tajona, the orno, everything has a such a a story just by looking at it. And and the main piece of like the gear that moves is the human behind it. Like everything else is a station, and the the the, the energy that is being transferred and move around is is this this these families that they're creating this mezcal by you know hand by hand is absolutely not just artisanal; it's physical. The physical work about mezcal is is insane. Yeah, definitely. You know, I'm glad that you said that, Gabs, because I I was wondering, um, Ryan. You know, I know that like there's a lot of talk about preserving traditional mezcal so do you want to explain to us what you guys mean when you talk about traditional mezcal yeah um so it, it's kind of i mean the way it has traditionally been made and it depends i guess what how big of a lens you're using to look at it for example in oaxaca you know at one point almost all the all these towns used uh, clay pots to distill in, but there are some that that started making mezcal after after that. Um, there's others that have been, you know, probably parts of Matatlan. There's probably families that have only really been distilling in copper since you know 1780 or 90 or something. Uh, so. I think for me, it's it's the way it has been made in the context of a few generations, and um, really importantly, I think the volumes that are produced, and um, maybe the well, I guess it kind of has to do with volume as well. The time of year that mezcal is made, in some places, um, it really is just once or twice a year during the end of the dry season. Uh, but that kind of varies throughout throughout Mexico and throughout Oaxaca, depending on the climate. And, um, but yeah, I think my definition of traditional mezcal is, uh, is following the, the tradition which the mezcal has been made in for a few generations and respecting the methods and volumes and and maybe the type of maguey used as well. And you get more into things like uh, how they how it's being proofed. If it's being proofed down with with water or with um, heads and tails or just distilled to proof. Uh, because so one example would be ehutla. Um, a lot of 
a lot of people, if they're using the refrescadera, they'll be, depending on how they use it, they'll be distilling um, at a pretty high proof. It'll be coming out at a very high proof. And they've traditionally proofed it down with water. So you can say that's a traditional mezcal uh, in some sense in parts of Ehutla. You mentioned something that it caught my ear, uh, volumes. So we talk about traditional mezcal and the volumes that this, uh, in under, under the understanding that we're talking about something very specific. What would be a proper volume? Is this determined by the amount of algae that is harvested in this in the area is this determined by the maguey that is you know maybe a family has been connected for five six generations and they're able to to get agave from farther away than just the region that they work with they have connections i don't know you know uh, uh, an hour away from from whatever town it is either miguatlan or matatlan or the sierra like what I'm trying to figure out, like, is would you say that this depends? The volume will depend also in the in the raw material that they're able to to acquire. Yeah, I think it does, and just the size of of the palenque, how many tinas or fermentation vats you have, and um, how many stills you have, and even a relatively. So, think of someone with two stills and uh, maybe like 8,000 liter tinas. Uh, um, a batch, so usually in, in Oaxaca at least, the biggest batches are espadín. And from what I've seen with people with these like pretty traditional standard size palenques, really the biggest batch size you'll get from an espadín uh, from filling all those all those fermentation vats at once uh, is around like a thousand liters. That's like a pretty big kind of the, like the, the largest size batch you can get uh, traditionally I, in my experience. So when you see some bottle that says 40,000 liters and they're calling it traditional mezcal or uh, what's the other term? Ancestral artisanal artisanal yeah they're calling it artisanal mezcal i mean, i i don't think that's really the truth anymore once you're getting too much over a thousand liter batch but for most um wild varieties you know it's it's very common uh batches around 100 to 200 liters and then you know often 40 liters 50 liters yeah, we we have been having a lot of conversation about this because you know there's there's bigger brands that they have, the that they have the money. That's the reality. Is they have the money to be able to, to work in with multiple palenques, with multiple producers, with multi like it's just it, it it becomes the game of how you organize your production. Other than what is the production looking like, it's it's kind of interesting. Uh, that you know, business-wise, it makes sense when you organize people in this way. But when we're talking about preserving culture, uh, it gets complicated because the more palenqueros that get together, the more homogenous sometimes the product become. Because you know, there's blending, there's uh, there's all kinds of stuff. I think it happens with this. And and I guess in order to have all these people working at the same time, just let's say you have a brand that has 
Tempalenk is working. How much agave you need, even if it is just a spadin, to maintain the production rhythm of 10 full palenques with people, with families, depending on this. Uh, it creates like a circle of like, well, if we don't have production, we don't have money. We don't have money. We don't pay the people. And if we don't pay the people, what are they doing? You know, it's, it's, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of those pictures when you see the snake eating their tail and just going in circles. Uh, and and also, I guess, you know, with all this that we're talking, like then you we were talking about production cost and the, the way that you have uh, come close to the, the palenques and the mezcaleros and, and organize and help is, is, you know, you're doing like the, the, the micro uh, coaching that happens on a, on a bigger scale that you see in Oaxaca or through Oaxaca. And, and, and I wanted to jump a little bit on that because I think you have a very, very important project that you guys are working on. Uh, Ley de Desarrollo Sustentable de Maguey y Mezcal. Uh, will, you, will you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, it's a group of people kind of spearheaded by, by Abel Alcantara and Maestro del Mezcal, but there's a, a number of people involved trying to create a federal law that would be kind of all-encompassing um, in terms of the management of traditional mezcal and and agave throughout Mexico, um, which is really just bringing together a lot of different uh, branches of the government and really trying to protect. So one of the things that we that it proposes is to make a number of different like geographical indications. Um, because as we know, uh, there's agave distillates made in most of Mexico. Um, the mezcal denomination of origin, uh, and the fact that they even called it mezcal or that they tried to make it so all-encompassing, um, it really fails to do what a denomination of origin is supposed to do, which is protect tradition and protect regional you know, styles of production. So what we would, we propose is to break it up uh, and form many different denominations of origin or geographical indications, and then have committees made up of mezcal producers and academics in the, in each of those regions, um, committees and subcommittees that would govern the, the geographical indication or the denomination of origin for that region. So really just making them a lot more specific and uh, involving the people that actually make mezcal in those regions in the decision making. With this proposition, is, is, is the idea to include the CRM? Um, I think it's, that's kind of up in the air as of now, but I don't, I mean, the way it is right now, they're not, they're definitely not on board with this, so. Probably not, but but it's but it's not because you're not including them. It's just they're not on board with the drastic change that this will show in the mezcal production. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of of people that would be unhappy to see this happen, um, and who knows if it will ever actually become a law. At this point, it is 
in the process of being, I don't remember all the, the different steps, but it needs to be approved kind of locally. Uh, and then it would be sent to the Mexican Senate, I believe, to be voted on. And um, then it has to go through a couple more steps before it would actually become a law, but it's definitely in the very, very preliminary stages right now. Under this law that you're having for sustainability, uh, the law reads as desarrollo sustentable, so uh, sustainable uh, development of maguey. You start with it with the, the word maguey and then mezcal. Is this because how how they're gonna be or what what is the intention of protecting the plant itself? Yeah, so um, land management in Mexico is super complicated, especially in Oaxaca. There's all different types of land. There's um, private land, there's ejido land, there's communal land, um, there's some kind of national forest, like government-owned land. And like even within the state of Oaxaca, there's never been a survey of the of the agave species or uh, like an all-encompassing all-encompassing survey of what is actually here. So you need, and to do that, you need to bring a lot of different groups together because um, you need access to all these different kinds of land. Uh, yeah. So looking at it on, on just a smaller level in Oaxaca, uh, this law would would hope to bring together these people to make a survey of what's actually here. And I mean, that's the first thing you need to do when you're going to try to protect something. You need to know what what is there. And also... Um, this issue with agave being moved, trafficked all over within within states and interstate in Mexico. Uh, I mean, we know huge amounts of agave go from from other states into Jalisco and end up in tequila production. Um, and any 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 kind of agave, it doesn't really matter what it is. Yeah. Uh, so even like Enaken in the Yucatan, I remember a few yeah. or more than a few, maybe like six or seven years ago, talking to some people there. And at one point, um, there's, so there's a lot of, of kind of abandoned Enaken fields there because there's just not a lot of production anymore. Uh, but at one point, you'd see these giant mountains of agave piled up on the freeways in the Yucatan, and it was going, it's all going to the the tequileros in Jalisco. I think we should be a little bit clear that the reason that that can happen is because the way that the laws are written for the CRT and what percentage of the juice needs to be uh, Blue Weber versus other varieties that can go in there, correct? Yeah, or, or other sugars. But or other and, sugars, right. and I'm, I'm guessing that a lot of those are ending up in in bottles that say 100% blue agave. I don't know, but that's my, mm-hmm. my theory. There are all these theories you want to tell it, but this this is something that is happening as we speak in a country that has, you know, you see the numbers for the CRT and the exportation leaders of tequila, and is it is frightening the amount of liters that comes out of, of, of a, a, a supposed just one region, right? And then 
this this I this this story is about Agave being transferred from one way to another, um, with the idea that it's not gonna be produced or done properly. Because that's the other thing. Like, what what will you be your thought about somebody that is able to secure on on a on a legit way a a a truck of uh, let's say a truck of 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 uh, a truck of Karwinski from Miwatlan and make it in some other region. It doesn't matter which one. You you can name it. And and traveling outside from that area will will this this idea of law will uh will will they will they try to not have that happen and keep the production locally to what is just from the land? Well, I think that's something that would be decided by the regional committees in the geographical indication. So maybe they you know if there was a geographical indication for mezcal minero. Uh, maybe they would decide that, uh, you know, historically, traditionally, they've bought mezcal or bought agave uh, from communities all over Oaxaca. And so maybe they decided that that's fine. But, uh, you know, maybe if if they said, uh, so the um, Largo from or the Marteño from Minas has to be made from from Agave Karwinski only from Minas or Santa Marta, Chichibotepec, something like that. So yeah, I think it, it starts to be uh, more specific, like the geographical indications in Europe for wine and whatnot. But I think controlling um, like interstate traffic of agave, or, you know, for example, right now, uh, I've seen some. I've heard that that there's some big companies planting um, tepextate from Oaxaca in Puebla, uh, or calling their papalome, or so agave potatorum. They're they're calling it tobala, but that that term doesn't have anything any historic use in Puebla. In Puebla, uh, yeah. But the CRM is completely fine with that. One of the terms that we. we... It caught my my eyes of of this uh, the the law that the the initiative of law is 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 in is in the makings right uh, they're working with the Secretaria of Agriculture and Rural Development. Uh, one of my biggest conversation points with Sabrina has been always like I never hear much of the government bodies uh, helping. In, in a truthful way, like you help, you hear like, oh, they give them money for making a bo- uh, a bottling uh, facility. Oh, they give them money. Like it's all with the help of just sh- like throwing some cash and making things on that on that matter. But I think there's there's a more important uh, role for the government, the, and maybe the local government, as you were saying. To, to be able to help uh, the, the the sustainable development in the regions by being able like just even the, the the survey that you were saying that you know will be one of the parts like just just having a, a realistic survey of uh, the, the agave plants in the regions like nothing like that exists we did a we, we did a project with Tess a couple probably it's going to be a year and some ago 
trying to put together uh, common names and smaller pictures, trying to do some kind of ID cards. And I can just imagine how crazy it was to make the map that you were mentioning, because for us, just, just to put information kind of together, it was uh, a year and a half. Yeah. from beginning to to finish uh how how much time do you put on the, on the map how how does that went along i mean it's just it's a work in progress and i think it'll be something that i'll always be <laughs> changing and updating. absolutely yeah <laughs> my next kind of project is to try to get good identifiable pictures of of all the things on my map so Oh, man that has been yeah. <laughs> you know just just to look around and, and 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 this is the other thing and we talk about it all the time with Sabrina and I like the hybrid uh the hybrid power that agave has and and the ongoing changes of this you know supposed single plants and then you have these hybrids that they're getting stronger and bigger and better and maybe becoming the most successful plant in the region in a few years you know the sub-varieties and, and the genetic variations, you know, within the same scientific species. Mm-hmm. Um, it's incredible. How, how much have you seen about it? Like we, we hear it, but we're not in, you know, we're not food on the, we're not feeding the ground and you are over there. Like it will be, I would love to hear a little bit about what you have seen of, of the hybrids going around. I think the best example is the, the Madre Quiche plant, um, for the listeners, if they don't know, it's a, a phenotype, a mostly cultivated phenotype of uh, Arwinski. And the reason it's called Madre Quiche is because uh, it really is the mother of many different types of agave. So people, if, if they take all the seeds from a quiote of Madre Quiche and plant them in a big seed bed, um, they'll say that they get all kinds of things out of there that they get plants that look more like Americanas, that they get coyotes, that they get all different types of phenotypes of uh, Karwinskis. The little bit that I've talked with uh, people who breed agave for ornamental purposes, it sounds like it's it's very easy to cross agave. And almost, it sounds like most species will cross with other species. In the wild, if they have the same flowering time, if they're relatively close to each other, if they have the same pollinators, uh, it's pretty easy to get to hybridization. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of hybridization. Uh, most recently, so this coyote, uh, which I think there's a couple different things going on with coyote, with coyote in Oaxaca. So one coyote is from Sola de Vega, which is an agave americana. Looks like an arroqueño in the rigid day group of, of agave. But um, the other coyote, which you find more in the Central Valleys or in uh, the Miahuatlan area is, I mean, well, a lot of people will tell you that it comes from seed from um, from Madre Quiche or seed or from Karwinski seeds. You often f- see it in regions uh, kind of between where Tobala or Potatoro or Simanianas are growing at a slightly higher elevation and the Karwinskis at a slightly lower elevation. Uh, but they recently said that there's a, another a new species called Lioba, uh, which they say is the coyote. What I think it actually is, is a different species. And I think in some parts of Oaxaca, more around Tlacolula, Matatlan, there is this Lioba species. And they do look very similar to the coyote. But the hybrids 
of, uh, of Simaniana or Potatorum and Karwinski produced uh, these coyotes that you can, uh, there's just a lot of, lot of variation. They don't necessarily look similar to one another. So I think those are also yeah. coyotes. I, I, I was able to see one in the last trip, uh, Adiova, and it was probably one of the most healthiest, greener, bigger, chunkier, Karwinski-type look uh, plant that I have seen in my life. It was so, like when you see it, everything else was kind of like on the dry side, and this thing was like bright, uh, deep green, and the, and the spines were like, almost like perky up it like it was very strange you know everything else around was kind of like in a very very dry state mm. uh, it was early early january this year and uh it was fascinating to watch and it was really yeah it was central valley's like area i wonder if we couldn't organize a couple of images uh between you know the three of us to put up online uh that goes along with this podcast yeah. um, to show people absolutely yeah and I would just like to circle back quickly, uh, Ryan, because there's two things I would wanted to ask just about the organization, the Maestros de Mascal. Um, and so one of them is, um, what is the structure of the organization? Like, how does somebody become a member? How, how do you guys fund some of the projects of, of helping these mezcaleros and either with resources for the palenques or, or um I don't know, legal, um, you know, resources or information. How does it work? So like you mentioned, it's very loosely organized. Um, but really, so each like region or sub-region, um, for example, the Mixteca uh, Alta, there's a group and there might be 50 producers in it. And then uh, they select someone as a president and as a secretary and a treasurer. Uh, and then the way the money, all, all the money that or the projects, um, usually financial that we've gotten for these different groups uh, has come from the government. So different parts of the government uh, sometimes I don't, I don't remember all the different acronyms, but so sometimes there'll be projects um, specifically destined for like agricultural pro projects. Other times there'll be ones um, that are destined for women uh, or for um, highly marginalized indigenous groups. Um, so, but they've, they've always been through the government. Um, so basically a tech, you need a technician to help you fill out all this paperwork. Um, to apply for these, I guess, kind of grants. Uh, they're, they're not usually, it's usually money that doesn't have to be paid back. Uh, some, most of the time they'll have to show some evidence of how it was used. Yeah, so there's usually a technician that will help apply for these grants. Uh, and they the way they're paid is as a percentage. They usually take 10% of however much the grant was for. And these people are third parties. They're not usually, they're not involved with Maestros de Mezcal, although we have used the same person a number of times. Um, so they're really in charge of going out to the towns, getting all the paperwork, and uh, and actually submitting the applications and following up with them. And 
that's another thing that is very common in rural Mexico. Uh, these kind of people that do this and really do just scam the the people in the towns and they'll collect all their information and they'll do these grants and they just will never give them any of the money or they'll give them a tiny fraction of what it is. So off the bat, people are uh, very skeptical of these kind of uh, grants. So it, you really, it, it, I mean, we have meetings like once a month usually. So everyone knows each other. There's a lot of trust within the group. Uh, it's not like we're just randomly going out to towns and be like, hey, do you guys want to sign up yeah. for these? These grants. These are, these are Ryan. Are these the the things that they call apoyos? Yeah, I mean apoyos. Um, I don't I don't know a lot about this part of it because I'm I'm not a Mexican citizen. I'm not really allowed to <laughs> be involved in any of that actual um, part. But yeah, I know that they're they are kind of grants from the government and. Uh, and yeah, sometimes they're they're very significant. There's there's a lot of money being moved on on support supposedly to to the lower income and just the, the just for the countryside of Mexico. But this is the crazy part of of a country like Mexico. You have you have uh, you know there's their their misuse and mistrust just intrinsical because they have always been fraud. Uh, in this kind of things and and an abuse of power and you know uh, the same the, not even the corruption is it's just crazy it's just like you say no oh, third party like most likely is the cousin of the cousin that the guy that is giving the support or the one that does this, the final signing of the paperwork to get it going or oh is the you know the the brother-in-law of the cousin of the prima, the like it, it gets really convoluted, but nonetheless, they're all in the same kind of like link family of of doing business like this, and it's kind of yeah. it's kind of scary. And to, you have to, to think that. have, and to even get access to these grants, you have to kind of have contacts within the different parties of government. It seems like um, so there's definitely like nepotism going on there. Not, not so, fair across the board. Is it? Is it? I don't know. Is it fair to like? I'm trying to think of like an American business correlation to what Maestros is trying to do. It, are are you guys acting as like a nonprofit in the sense of like there might be different chapters within the organization, and you guys kind of like, or is there like one larger body that kind of checks in with these different communities that are part of it? I mean. Yeah, I mean, it really is Abel. He's the he is the sole one that goes around to all these different parts of Mexico and organizes these groups. And, and he is definitely the, the one that has contact with with each of the the producers, each of the participants. Uh, and and okay. yeah, he does not doesn't have too much help really. That's a lot That's, of work for one person. <laughs> that is a lot of work. Yeah, yeah definitely. Wow, and just in, and even just thinking if this if this goes in the way that you you're talking about it, that it should be national because just just thinking like I'm I'm from I'm from Sinaloa my mom is from Culiacan Sinaloa and I've been digging around crates and things and and finding that you know 
Mazatlán and Culiacán and, and all that area was a so it was super strong production of mezcal. Which mm -hmm. is it? It was it, they were near the coast. Mazatlán was one of the biggest ports in the in the early 1800s, and and production was super strong of mezcal and agave distillates. And and then suddenly it gets it's the one state that you see in all the maps that is blank. It's like oh, it doesn't have agave. Of course, it has agave. What are you fucking talking about? Yeah. <laughs> it's so bizarre to see like all the state of Sinaloa. You have Jalisco full of agave. Nayarit, full of, full of agave. Uh, Sonora, uh, Tamaulipas, and all the upper states kind of like spared, like like if somebody just sprinkled them in the maps. And then you see uh, <laughs> Sinaloa is completely empty. You never see that they put like even a single agave on it. Like, oh, you know, it's, agave doesn't grow there. I, I, people might think. And and then you start doing research. It's like, no, they were one of the biggest producers until the you know, early 1900s that it gets completely obliterated. And they, uh, pr they basically, it was one of the first states that they were like, you're not allowed to produce mezcal. <laughs> hmm. But just thinking about the, all, all the stuff that we're talking about, like, the the fact of one single person reaching out to multiple states and multiple it's like this is a giant 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 process and 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 it's gonna take it's gonna take a while but I hope I really really hope that this is the beginning of of uh, of the change that is very much needed in mezcal artesanal in Mexico man yeah so um for anybody that is listening that doesn't know already, I, I have, I can't believe we've waited this long in the conversation to talk about it, but, um, Ryan, you are also producing a podcast under the same name, Maestros uh, del Mezcal, and it's a podcast that has been instrumental for me personally, the information that you discuss. And I know there aren't like a ton of episodes out there, but, um, I encourage you to keep producing them at whatever whatever pace you can because I think what you're doing is really really awesome. So, um, do you want to just talk a little bit about uh, why and how you decided to step into the podcast world? <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for listening. I'm glad you like it. Um, so, I guess I mean, I uh, always been kind of a wine wine nerd. I make a little wine back in California, and I started listening to a couple of different wine podcasts, uh, mostly while commuting or driving, and I just think I'm, I've always been an auditory learner, so I think it's a great way to, to get information, and at the time there wasn't, I don't think there were any other mezcal podcasts, and it's just a, a topic that's so gigantic, um, and I don't think I can ever run out of of material for episodes, and I think also just educate educating the consumer, um, especially about about traditional mezcal, um, is very important. And so that's kind of what I set out to do, and yeah, just sharing what I know and and which is always evolving and changing. Uh, I don't think. I mean, there's so many so many topics that you think you know something and then and then you find more information or maybe it completely changes um, so I think it it will always be kind of an evolving podcast yeah I think that's the name of the game I mean I, a large reason why Gabrielle and I even just started doing this was 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 just selfishly like for our own learning 
capacity, like, you know, or like, oh, let's just let's talk to people because there wasn't a lot out there. And um, and like you were saying, you know, this is a subject that is just endless as far as learning more things evolving um you know people bringing their respective disciplines to the conversation i think you know mezcal and agave like as a cat like mezcal is a category you know the biodiversity in agaves the historical context i mean it's just it's so rich and full for um for so so much conversation and and it's been very heartening i don't know if you feel the same way but like i feel like a lot of a lot of listeners that reach out are equally as passionate and grateful for the conversations and so it keeps us going because it's certainly not paying the bills but that's fine you know like this is passion this is this is about the love of of the place and of the plant yeah definitely yeah and i'd love to I'm to, I really want to try to do more and do them more consistently. Just did one uh, starting the great fly experiment. Check it out. And uh, I have another one that will be coming out in a couple of days. So I'm going to try with this whole quarantine situation, try to uh, get on it a little more. Man, that sounds amazing. Um, yeah, Gabs, do you have anything to add? You know, just listening to all all the stuff that we talk about, and and the the you mentioned in a few places, in, in I think is the Cornelio Perez fourteen point criteria of the for the tradition of mezcal that that on itself I think we have to have to do a full episode just re, like just talking about the points because I think we can get super super into it. Uh, but the 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 term of gusto histórico. And 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 just that thought of of protecting the taste, the historical chosen taste from the communities. But this is the first time that we get in front of somebody that has a a, a solid proposal in the making, and this is pretty awesome. So congratulations, honestly. Thanks. Yeah, you guys should try to find someone from Cornelio Perez's uh, original tasting group or Marco I think Marco Ochoa was in in that group as well or in uh, Graciela Angeles but they they definitely kind of laid the foundation for what I think a lot of people uh, use as uh, definitely for, for the ways to taste mezcal and appreciate the, the gusto historico in this kind of academic sense behind yeah. it as well Beautiful. Thank you so much, man. I, I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, Thank you thanks guys. so much for taking the time to speak with us. Um, you know, I hope I hope we can do it again sometime. For sure. Awesome. Oh, Thank be you. well and salut, Salud, 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 Salud. <laughs> Cheers. Hey, hey, Agave is a production of Tuyo NYC. Brittany Prater is our editor. Your hosts are Gabriel Velasquez Zazueta and me, Sabrina Lazard. Our music is by Milagro Verde. Find them on Instagram at Milagro underscore Verde BK. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Salicita.